Hello and welcome back to Emma and Tom's PGCE podcast. This is episode two and it's the second one in a double episode about the new Welsh curriculum and what we've been finding out about it and presenting at conferences. That's right. So last episode, we had the honour of Dr Judith Neen joining us and I'm glad to say that she's back. (laughs) Yeah, we have the honour of having locked the door so she can't get out. (laughs) (laughs) Much as I would try. (laughs) It was a nice try, but you didn't run fast enough, Judith. You're here again. And uh, we're going to look at something that Emma and I have been researching into. Um, Now, some of you who are long-term listeners may remember uh, an episode early on last year in which we talked about our project that we did with the students, in which we tried to investigate how cross-curricular teaching and learning might work in the expressive arts, because the Donaldson Report makes a big thing about making powerful connections between the subjects. And Judith, you talked about subject teachers feeling terribly threatened by this. So we decided to leap in feet first with our students and see if we could make it work. That's right. So if you want to listen back to that episode, it was episode five from last year. And we spoke a lot in that episode about our initial findings. We could be perceived to be a bit foolhardy because we just thought, right, let's let's just have a go. Yeah. Let's just have a go at working in a cross-curricular way and see what our students make of it. We were very much guided by the Donaldson success Futures report, um, specifically Pedagogical Principle 8, which speaks about, as Tom mentioned, these meaningful connections. And we've done a little bit of um, initial reading, book by Fortley and Savage. Uh, Cross-curricular teaching and learning in the secondary school. Expressive arts. That's what it's called. That's the one. That's the one. That one. Yes. Um, but they, those were our, our two main sources, actually, to, to help guide that exploration. And, and we learned a lot from that, which we shared in that episode. We're not going to repeat now. But what we found and one of our key recommendations to ourselves off the back of this was to do a little bit more reading and research about different pedagogical approaches to cross-curricular delivery and we were really inspired by a colleague who we've had on our lovely podcast in previous episodes Sally Bethel because she was doing something called a systematic literature review and we were quite intrigued by this weren't we Tom? Yeah because to be honest when we review the literature quite often we do just dive in and start grabbing articles and books and hoping for the best really and and we were very intrigued by Sally's suggestion that it was possible to go about this in a slightly more systematic way and this is something I think that School of Sport who we share a campus with do quite a lot and I think it's also quite a big deal in the slightly more scientific parts of the academic world. Yeah, so having decided that we needed to review any literature that was out there that spoke about cross-curricular pedagogy within the expressive arts, we decided systematic lit review was best. And to quote from an article by Edwards et al, systematic reviews utilise explicit, rigorous and transparent methods in order to minimise bias and offer a complete, coherent overview view of contemporary knowledge on a topic (laughs) yes which put into normal language means set some rules and stick to them rather than just jumping around between books and articles so set rules we did and we did 
that, which kind of resonates with our first episode of this season with asking some really good questions. So we need some guiding questions, which would be our kind of limiting parameters, our rules um, for selecting any papers that we thought might be pertinent to our systematic lit review. So our guiding questions were theories and philosophies of cross-curricular pedagogy in the arts. So I guess that's not a question, but we wanted to know why other writers and researchers what their perspectives were on cross-curricular pedagogy within the arts yeah and then obviously with our students in mind we wanted hopefully to find some practical examples people describing it actually going on in a classroom then we set about setting up some clear kind of selection criteria for the papers that we looked at because we realised that, you know, we would need to kind of draw the line somewhere and set some clear parameters so that when we did our first trawl of the literature out there, it would reap results that were pertinent to the questions that we'd set. It took us all day, didn't oh, it, it did. to come up with a search term. Oh, and, uh, it did. Had we just seen Judith's presentation before we started, we might have been a little bit quicker because, Judith, you had various words defined there, didn't you, for different kinds of interdisciplinary curriculum. But, uh, yeah, so we used them interchangeably in our search criteria. We used cross-curricular, interdisciplinary and transdisciplinary just interchangeably. We, we were having them all. We were. And we also wanted to make sure that we were limited to the expressive arts, obviously, because that's our subject specialisms and disciplines um, and we wanted to keep it quite narrow systematic lit reviews are really useful in that they're they're helpful when you already know what you want to find out about so you can keep it really focused because otherwise you know you could end up diluting your findings and and be quite overwhelmed actually with all the literature that it reaps so we we also limited our search criteria so that it would only focus on the expressive arts and one of the features of a systematic lit review is you make these decisions and you sort of make your peace with them, really. We already knew we were not going to pick up certain things. We weren't going to look at book chapters. Uh, we were not going to look at any articles that had too much from subjects outside the expressive arts. If somebody comes up to it and says, well, you know, your lit review is not complete because you didn't do that. We say, well, that was the plan. We didn't Absolutely. want to do it. We can always do that another time. So with the systematic lit review, you can set your rules early on and you don't have to kind of defend yourself afterwards. You just say, well, you know, if you're interested in that, go and find it yourself <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely yeah as long as as long as you explain then Did you, can I just ask so, so from someone who's not done a systematic lit review but sure. has looked at has trawled through the literature in a most unsystematic way <laughs> um did did it feel constraining did you feel that it was guessing what you wanted from it well I mean I think one of the biggest surprises was how long it took us to nail down the search term. Yes. Um, I think we we realised early on that you do have to put an awful lot of thought into that. And actually, initially, we did only turn up a single article, didn't we? Yes. Do you remember? We, put the, <laughs> we made an enormous <laughs> search term that, that included lots of words from the expressive arts and specifically excluded every other subject name. And I mean, this search term was enormous. And it turned up one article from 1976. Yeah, which we included. <laughs> <laughs> so it was going to be a very short lit review. But yeah, it is a slightly different process, most definitely. Yeah. And... When Sally Bethel very kindly sat us down, she did kind of, when she was explaining to us the process, she was very upfront with us about the fact that, that it is a slightly different mindset that you have to have when you do, where you do know that you are 
you are constrained. And as long as you make your peace with that before you start, then you're okay. And I suppose as long as you see it as as things for further study rather than massive holes in your work, then yeah. it's kind of okay. But you're right, it's slightly different feeling mm-hmm. to yeah. it. I think what it does do as well, though, is it creates a set of rules that actually can really stop you from making the literature review become too unwieldy. Because, I mean, I often suffer when I'm doing a literature review of, of not being able to know where to stop. Yeah. And when you've got those clear parameters, and if you strictly observe them I mean because we did get to one stage where we thought well maybe we'll break the rules a little bit because you can do that with systematic lit reviews if you find something that the search didn't throw up but you Mm -hmm. think that it meets your selection criteria then you can you can insert it we decided to be quite strict with our rules and actually I think that helped to make it more manageable yeah um so from a productivity perspective I think it was it was helpful for us during a very busy year yeah and I think it's important to bear in mind as well that although you do the library search you know you get your search term a lot of what it turns up is is clearly completely useless so that the sort of library systematic library searching bit is just the first step and you then have to look at those search results with your eyeballs (laughs) (laughs) and realize that just because maybe it's got those words that you asked for in the title it's not going to be any use and having spoken to our research librarian here mark lester who works in in the library here in kinkoid he says it does work more easily in yeah. areas like pharmacy and healthcare and things like that, where you sort of have names of drugs and names of diseases and bits of the body <laughs> and things in titles of articles. Whereas I think those of us working in the more social science areas, people tend to put sort of deliberately vague things in titles sometimes, don't they? And annoying plays on words to try and appear clever and things like that. And it does result in you getting some really strange stuff up in your initial sweep. Yeah. But I mean, that said... It's one almighty filtering process that starts with kind of, essentially it's kind of like an algorithm, isn't it? That helps you to filter in your first wave, going all the way down to human eye, us deciding at a desk, reject or accept. And that actually got us down to how many sources? 10. 10. 10 articles. We had 82 in the initial search. But once we'd got rid of ones that were talking a lot about non-expressive arts subjects and those which had just kind of snuck through and were about something completely different, we ended up with 10. And they were an interesting bunch of articles, those 10, weren't they? They were quite an interesting bunch. There was a bit of a um, a spectrum of rigour. <laughs> I, and yes, reliability. Yes, there are some there are some that have entered our shared language as being, you know, a byword for really terrible quality academic writing, actually. Um, I, I don't know what you think about Judith about this, Judith. We always drum into our students, don't we, the, the importance of taking a balanced approach and being unbiased when doing research. Yeah, I think having a critical eye is the more important thing, though, isn't it? Of Yeah, you've, you've got to be balanced, but actually you've got to have a critical eye on what you're looking at as well. Yeah, and we had quite a few articles that were just saying working in a cross-curricular way uh, is the best thing since sliced bread. Here's mm-hmm. why. And very, very little criticality. There were some really wild ones um, where people were doing some very kind of strange things. A lot of it was not from the UK as well, which was quite interesting. I think most of it was non-UK. 
No, I, I, but I think the better ones on the scale were ones that had some really good sort of concrete findings that had done a literature review. I'm thinking back to, to our previous deep discussion with you, Judith, and that kind of, you know, clear, methodical approach of reading uh, a body of literature, using that to triangulate with your own findings, you know, and, and then what they threw out was some really interesting, concrete, practical examples and categories of cross-curricular pedagogy that will be the absolute nuts and bolts and heart of what we're going to talk to you about today. So when we had narrowed down to our 10 key articles, we went through a process of coding and the coding method that we used is called thematic coding and basically what that means is we decided what our themes were and when we read we were highlighting areas of the text that met those themes. And there are all sorts of snazzy computer programs that allow you to do this uh, if you're a research academic but we opted to use paper and coloured highlighter pens <laughs> <laughs> we did and we used our guiding questions so we were looking for theories about cross-curricular pedagogies and practical examples we used those two kind of key themes to guide our kind of broad brush thematic coding to begin with so we did that and what we noticed as i said a moment ago in that process was that some of these articles had named categories or types of cross-curricular pedagogy. And this resonates really nicely with the research that Judith presented in our previous episode about different types of integrated curriculum design. But this went to a slightly um, more granular and more focused degree where they were sort of classifying how that looks and how that feels and what the outcomes are within expressive arts lessons. And it was quite a nice bit of luck for us, really, because we thought we were going to have to do a kind of double process of coding. This sort of really broad brush coding was just supposed to be the first stage. And then we were going to look for some more individual themes within that. But actually just doing that two category coding theory and practice turned up these classifications of cross-curricular approaches in the expressive arts, ways that you can join more than one subject together in the classroom. And it was so potentially useful that we actually stopped what we were doing and decided that was going to be our focus. Yes. And I think the reason why we stopped and we got so excited was that we had a bit of a hypothesis. We had a bit of a hunch when we were just feeling our way in previous uh, versions of our cross-curricular practical explorations with our students, our university sessions, we had a hunch that there might be a bit of a, a spectrum of meaningful connections. I'm harping back to, to, to Donaldson there and also to your research, Judith. So this spectrum, I guess you could loosely classify as being on one end of the scale, you've got arts disciplines being used as a container or um, some researchers have referred to them as being a, a handmaiden for other subject disciplines all the way up to much more what we would call meaningful connections where perhaps arts disciplines are being enhanced in, in both camps by being combined in an integrated or multidisciplinary going back to your your episode Judith in that way so Having looked at five sources that came up with these categories, we then decided to come up with our own kind of classification system, didn't we, Tom? We did, yeah. And this links with something you said, Judith, in the last episode, didn't you, in terms of the challenges for primary, that 
the subject disciplines need to be taught. <laughs> you said they're being used. Yes, I think there is also a danger that speaking to primary colleagues that things aren't always appearing within the curriculum. And then when they are appearing within the curriculum, they're not always, the skills and the knowledge are not always being explicitly taught. And a lot of our sources that classified had some version of that. Um, that we, we highlighted and we, we found the names. They all had different names and we highlighted them all the same colour. But what they were basically saying was the arts were being used as a way to make something else more interesting. Uh, or more fun. And we decided to call this, we'll call it category one, peripheral. Yeah, so the arts is on the outside, banging on the door, trying to get in, sitting around the outside. And I think it's really important to say there's not, you know, there's nothing wrong with that approach. There's nothing wrong with using songs to make drilling more interesting or you know even as some of my pgc primary students said you know they just play music to get the kids to tidy up faster and things like that it's absolutely fine a perfectly good strategy as a teacher as long as you understand that you're not necessarily teaching them the discipline skills of music or whatever it is that you're using for that purpose yeah and i've got a lovely quote that sums that up here and this is by wiggins 2001 one of the sources that we came across in our lit review he says if it is limited to this as in a peripheral or handmaiden sort of approach we cannot fault our colleagues for relating us the arts to a subservient position as mere entertainers and that chimes with everything that Judith mentioned about how the, the arts historically have been marginalised um, and maybe seen as as perhaps, um, you know, the icing on the cake, but but not, you know, front and centre or not not a, a, a firm fixture on any curriculum. And not, not worthy of exploration mm. and investigation themselves mm. and, and development. But it, it also, you going through this now reminds me of, um, or it makes me think about English as a subject, because that's yeah. my own area of, actually, we wouldn't think of just having English being taught through the other subjects. Obviously, it is taught through other subjects, but it has its own credibility mm. as, as a subject area as well. We don't just use writing or reading to service the other subjects. That's part of it but it has it, it, its own special place within the curriculum, which is which is what should happen with the arts as well. So that was, our, I mean, we, we sort of think of that as being the lowest on our scale, simply because we just feel that the, the arts discipline itself is so low on the priorities in that learning experience. And the next one that we came up with, I think it's fair to say, was the one that we tended to see most often when our student teachers thrown into our cross-curricular project were trying for the very first time to try and combine drama and music in a learning experience, which is, uh, we didn't call it this, but the, the sort of hit and hope method, the put them together in a room and hope that some sort of meaningful connections will be made. Just combine them. And what did we call it? Disciplinary proximity. Yeah. Put them we... together near to each other and hope something happens. Yeah. So this is where, where aspects of two or more disciplines share time, space, topic and or stimulus. And I think this is similar to your, um, was it multidisciplinary where they might be um, combined by a topic? It's it's probably, yes. It, multidisciplinary is combined by a topic. Yeah. But yes, the disciplines are still existing very much side by side yes yeah, yeah. and um, so the hope is that one discipline will yeah. clarify or enrich in another yeah. enrich, enrich another and the thing with this which we found with our students is 
it just doesn't always work it's 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 too easy to just hope that that's going to be the case and if you don't have some sort of quality control in place in terms of the way that you plan either one discipline gets massively shortchanged at the expense of the other or actually sometimes i think we've observed this they both kind of get dragged down to a sort of lowest common denominator situation so thinking from my music point of view we would see learning experiences planned by our students where the music was really just relegated to sound effects. Yes. And and not really kind of musical content. And that similar, I think your your bugbear was freeze frames, wasn't it, Emma? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, just diluting everything down to the the sort of the most foundational form, which is fine, but it's as you said, Judith, it's not that kind of deep dive into no. the subject. It it also in danger of becoming a, a tick box thing of yeah we can say that we've done drama because we've done a freeze frame we can say that we've included music because we've put some music in the background and that great point yeah great point so yes and and this is something again that came through in the literature obviously which was you know where all of this derives from but we've got a quote here that sums this up this is Wenner 1976 who says the quality of the art experience needs to be constantly improved so that children perceive the equal value of the subjects being related and gain more knowledge of the arts as well as knowledge of other subject areas. That's kind of just a compounding quotation there. So I think what we concluded was that sometimes it can work if you just put the two disciplines in a room and hope for the best. But in our articles that we read, in our classifications that we found, it quickly became clear to us that it was possible to get beyond just hoping and plan in such a way that both disciplines were far more likely to be equally served. Yes. So then we started to get to approaches where the magic was beginning to happen. Our third category is called cooperative development, as we've coined it. And this is where pupils use their skills and or knowledge in one discipline to help them understand concepts or overcome obstacles in another and vice versa. So development in one discipline helps prompt development in the other in an iterative process. Yeah, so I tend to think of this as building two walls. You've got your one discipline wall and your other discipline wall, and you don't necessarily want one to become massively higher than the other, but they're never going to be quite the same height. And uh, I think in some of the best things our student teachers have done for us when we've been working with them in this, it's when they give the pupils the time and space to choose which way they go around. So if they get stuck in the music, they've got the kind of freedom to stop and park it and go and have a little go at something to do with drama, which will allow them to kind of get more understanding or go round the obstacle and not have it managed out so I know we've had we've seen things where the kind of classroom management has taken over and the opportunities to do that have been kind of taken away from the pupils because pupils will be stronger in different disciplines at different times and I guess this really does rest um, and live and die on um, some of the additional kind of resourcing implications that you talked about Judith you know if they are going to be able to sort of pendulum between the two disciplines at the same time then that's obviously got scheduling issues to navigate and also resource issues to navigate but I guess 
you mentioned about, you know, at a, at a minimum, it's teachers talking to one another about the opposite discipline and looking for those opportunities for building the two walls and where the, you know, in regard to our own subjects, the elements of music and the elements of drama have common ground. Yeah. And, and it's very much a sense of discovery from the teachers as well and development of um, understanding not only their own area but having a a broader understanding of of what's going on Mm. um so you know when interviewing the the teachers involved in the project that we were doing it was it was very much they were boosted they were encouraged by their contact with the by their connections with the other subjects yeah Uh, wiggins says this doesn't he he does there's a lovely quote sorry i jumped go on do it you're excited (laughs) strike for the other that that coffee's kicking in isn't it he's kicking in yeah so uh, Wiggins from 2001 says that actually it's not just the pupils that benefit from this if you do it properly because it gives the opportunity for teachers to enrich their own understanding of things by going and talking to their colleagues and discovering the exciting things about the other subjects and how they interface with their own subject specialisms. Absolutely. So, yes, that was category number three and that's where we I would suggest and I think you probably back me on this, Tom. If not, I'll uh, withdraw your coffee <laughs> Words, next <afterwards>, time. Yeah. <laughs> um, is a more meaningful connection yeah. between the subjects. Definitely. And we saw this with our students, didn't we? We have a nice example of that with our students where they taught some skills in African drumming which was a music skill, and they taught some skills in movement, something called him hands, which I haven't come Physical across. Physical theatre, darling. Physical theatre, darling. My life is enriched by it uh, <laughs> enormously, as I didn't get involved. And then, crucially, they were able to experiment and discover how altering the way that the music was performed, so just simple things like how fast it was performed, how loudly it was performed, made them perform the physical theatre in a different way. So they were able to see how the elements of one influenced the elements of another. And the crucial thing there was that they learnt some solid discipline skills in the two subjects first. And without having done that, they couldn't have moved on to the stage of investigating how they connected. Yes. Um, And just to to add to that, um, that concrete example, what was also a really key feature of the success of, of this workshop was that they'd chosen to narrow quite precisely down to the the, the elements that they wanted to uh, their pupils to explore it's about depth not breadth um, if you want your pupils to to really kind of gain those that knowledge and skills in a meaningful way you need to be quite restricted in what you ask them to focus on yeah and that's a really great example of the difference between the disciplinary proximity shove them in a room room and hope for the best and the much more meaningful planning and thought that goes into making sure that both disciplines get a fair crack of the whip and when people don't quite get the difference between those two things i think that's a great way to kind of show the difference absolutely so moving on to our final category category four common concept which actually we would talk about we had a bit of a taxonomy that emerged later on we've also talked about a spectrum we would probably put category four and three on even grounding in terms of how meaningful the connections they can they can facilitate yeah we put the peripheral one the, the arts being used right at the bottom we put the hit and hope in the middle and these last two we couldn't really choose between them in terms of their meaningfulness so we put them side by side at the top we did so common concept is pupils learning about a concept 
which is shared between more than one discipline. So I suppose there already you've got to engage with the subject teacher within the opposite discipline or opposite disciplines in order to seek out what that common concept might be. They overcome difficulties and they, the pupils, overcome difficulties and misconceptions regarding the concept in one discipline by using their understanding of the concept in another. This works equally well in either direction. And it's really useful if we give you a concrete example of this that involves English. Yay, Judy. <laughs> so this comes directly from one of the papers that we we read Um, and this is where pupils were investigating the concept so the common concept of composition by using a double page spread in a notebook so they were looking at composition in writing and composition in drawing pupils make progress in composition in one medium in order to improve their understanding of the skills and composition in the other and the impact was that progress was made in both disciplines because pupils could use their individual strengths to improve the weaker discipline and it, it was quite independent in terms of their decision about when to go to the opposite page. So they might be having trouble with the writing, choose to work a little bit more on the on the drawing, and that might unlock something that might then in turn have an impact on their on their writing composition. And the article used a really nice metaphor, didn't it? The metaphor of translation seeing it as a process of translation backwards and forwards, which was a nice one to think about. It was actually because it talks about translation. When when we're trying to translate from one language to another, sometimes there is no word um, there, or there is. A, so you have to come up with something new. There's something un, unknown. So yeah. the innovation kind of comes in there when you, you find that there isn't a word in this language that translates directly to this word in this language. That's right. I mean, that is a, I mean, that, that example is really powerful with me because I've never thought of doing that as an English teacher, looking at composition from an artist's point of view. But I do practice art myself and so seeing that there's sort of all light bulbs going off in my head right now mm. about how that helps both disciplines. And and I think going back to kind of authenticity, but also going back to the the, the real world that we're setting our pupils up for. I, I was actually listening to Radio 4's Woman's Hour this morning on my way into work and, and they were interviewing a famous, oh, you're going to have to help me with this, um, brass player. She's 91. She's Scottish. Yikes. I don't know. We'll find it out for you. But she was she was on the radio and she was talking about how she likes to go to art galleries. She's really interested in the work of Turner and his artwork has really influenced her composition. And um, she gave some really good concrete examples of this. You know, so even in the, you know, in the in the field, in the profession, artists out there are looking to other arts disciplines to help them identify common concepts and to help them unlock aspects of their creativity and innovation in what they're working at and making money from it Mm. (laughs) so there we go yeah so those are our findings and i suppose we were quite heartened by this not only because we've now got some concrete examples to give our students rather than sort of slightly vague instructions which is what we had up to this point but also This whole idea of combining subject disciplines, I mean, Judith hinted at this in the last episode, is 
particularly scary to secondary teachers, partly because of the subject identity and partly because of the sense that kind of almost the whole school needs knocking down and rebuilding from scratch, you know, and the timetable needs thrown in the bin and all that kind of thing. And one of the things we discovered was that the most meaningful ways of combining the subject disciplines don't actually destroy the kind of really important sacred things of the individual subjects. In fact, as we found in the difference between disciplinary proximity and you know the one above it, uh, which was called uh, cooperative development, <laughs> the difference between the less meaningful and the more meaningful was actually the presence of the subject discipline things in there. And also that you don't need a ton of resources and a ton of expense and to throw the whole kind of thing out and start again. So that was kind of strangely heartening, really. Yeah, I think it really was. And and um, one of the writers, I think it was Wiggins 2001, also mentions that, you know, we don't need to chuck a whole bunch of money at this in order to make meaningful connections. It could start with a cup of tea, with you sitting mm. down with somebody within your AOLE. You know, in my case, it was music and just looking at your your respective curriculum documents or looking at the what matters statements looking at you know the the more subject iterations of of those AOLE curriculum documents and then looking for commonalities common ground you know how powerful to be able to then simply just as a step in the right direction say to one another, well, you're doing a scheme of work on X, I'm doing a scheme of work on Y, and we normally do them at completely different times in the year. Let's just place them side by side in the year and and see how we can draw attention to one another's common concepts or discipline, uh, skills, knowledge, or, or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> and I think Savage has it right, doesn't he, when he, he tells us in his book on cross-curricular teaching and learning that really all you need is to go to those other subjects with an appreciation and a sensitivity towards what makes those subjects special uh, to those people who love them and teach them and specialise in them. And that if you go in with that sort of mindset, I mean, really, I suppose we're just modelling an approach to things to our pupils that people should be doing more widely in the world, really. Um, You're not going to go far wrong and you're going to find plenty of interesting things that could well refresh the way that you go about your job. So there we go. That's our deep discussion into cross-curricular teaching and learning in the expressive arts. It's time to have another go at the short slots. And as promised, Emma has an interesting quote from Einstein. I do. I mentioned a novel that I've been reading last time. I won't go into the absolute details of it, but I will just remind you that it comes from Deborah Harkness um, from her All Souls trilogy, A Discovery of Witches. And as I was reading, I came across an interesting quote that was by Albert Einstein. And it comes from a, a much longer essay entitled The World as I See It by Albert Einstein. And it's a really interesting read. So have a little look for it if you'd like to read it in its entirety. But what I thought was that this particular extract, it piqued my curiosity because I thought it might have a wider message for teacher trainees or indeed teachers at any stage in their career um, because it kind of chimed with me of, you know, the reason why we do what we do, but also kind of gave us permission inadvertently from Albert Einstein to not always know the answers. So he says, the most beautiful experience we can have is the mysterious. It is the fundamental emotion which stands at the cradle of true art and true science. Whoever does not know it and can no longer wonder, no longer marvel, is as good as dead 
and his eyes are dimmed. It was the experience of mystery, even mixed with fear, that engendered religion. A knowledge of the existence of something we cannot penetrate, our perceptions of the profoundest reason and the most radiant beauty, which only in their primitive forms are accessible to our minds. It is this knowledge and this emotion that constitute true religiosity. In this sense, and in this alone, I am a deeply religious man. Now, it's, it's quite wordy, it's quite long, but I think what, what I got from this is that you're not always going to have concrete answers, the quest for knowledge and the quest for mystery <laughs> and and the feeling that sometimes art and science won't always give you the answers. But actually, that's that's maybe a reason to thrive and to live is that quest for a bit of mystery in your life and to, to be asking why and how and what next. It really spoke to me. And I guess for you as as teacher trainees at the start of your journey, don't worry that you don't know all of the answers. We're still trying to crack this uh, this teaching lark. Um, <laughs> but 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 enjoy each new scheme of work that you teach when you're coming at it fresh, because it'll be a mystery to you as to how your how your pupils will receive it. And they will always throw up something new and exciting in in response to to this lovely job that we have in in giving the gift of knowledge skills and and a lot more to our learners yeah and i think probably this episode's coming out towards the end of september so maybe those new academic year resolutions are starting to <laughs> hit the reality a little bit so it's it's nice to just remember what we're supposed to be doing as teachers and and the kind of ethos we want to set up in our classrooms for our pupils Okay, so <laughs> a well-being tip from me yeah. now, uh, and I have a quote. I have a quote from the world of music to uh, kick this one off, and this is from a book by a famous accompanist called Gerald Moore. So, an accompanist is that person who sits at the piano behind the soloist, uh, generally getting totally ignored in a performance. And and I trained as an accompanist, so I used to sit behind a a range of divas on stage before I got into this teaching lark. And so his book is one that's very precious to me. And there's two little bits uh, that I just want to share. First of all, he says, at the risk of shattering the reader's illusions, I must tear aside the veil of mystery which shrouds the godlike figures of musicians and state that when they walk onto the platform, they're often so petrified with nerves that they would give half their fee or nearly half to be elsewhere. (laughs) And he also goes on to say that uh, the audience that applauds the dexterity of a juggler is not aware that he's perspiring profusely under his immaculate top hat, that he's (laughs) cursing copiously under his breath, or that he's practiced some particular trick for months before venturing to perform it in public. It all looks so easy. And certainly as musicians, and I guess as actors as well, um, everybody is trained uh, not to give the audience uh, an uncomfortable experience by making it clear what an absolute nightmare we're often having out there on the stage. And I think we do it as teachers as well. I think in the school environment, we're almost conditioned to try to always look like we're on top of things uh, to our pupils, to our colleagues maybe to those senior managers who might be scenting blood in the water we always try to present this this facade that everything's great we're totally on top of things and i'm going to invite you listeners uh, to just consider the possibility that actually maybe we're not (laughs) (laughs) and 
on top of that to suggest that perhaps if we're so busy giving the impression that we're absolutely on top of things, maybe we're convincing somebody near us in the workplace who is looking at you and thinking, oh gosh, they're on top of everything. Uh, I'm not on top of everything. Therefore, I must be a complete disaster area. And I know, Emma, that we have both been guilty of doing this to each other, haven't we yeah, sometimes? Um, definitely. Presenting uh, this facade that everything's great and actually we're not. And I sometimes make a point now of just letting you know what a complete shambles I'm making of things. <laughs> just because I don't want you to think that about me. <laughs> And often, you know, I think that's a, a really uh, useful opportunity for that the other person to say, "Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, <laughs> perspiring with you. underneath my top hat." Underneath your top hat. <laughs> so I don't know what you think about this, Judith. I'm going to suggest there's a well-being tip that we all take off the top hat <laughs> and tell some colleagues that actually it's all a bit of a front. It is. Um, it's actually very comforting as well. I, I spoke to a colleague who shall remain nameless the other day, who has given me the impression of, of, of managing. We're in, in a process of huge change at the moment within our programmes. And, and I just popped in and said, how are things going? And she said, and, oh, did I say she? She said... <laughs> <laughs> Still doesn't narrow it down. That narrows it down a bit. Um, that uh, feeling things uh, were becoming rather hectic. And actually that was... Because uh, I've been feeling the same way, uh, it was um, it was tremendously helpful to me. <laughs> Good, I think that's a, a brilliant well-being tip at the start of the year. Remember this, keep replaying it to yourselves, yes. everybody. And remember, remember the effect that your facade might be having on the person opposite you. <laughs> brilliant, and I also have uh, something to try, and this is something that I have tried uh, during the last academic year. And it's a very simple one. It's just the idea of tracking the time that you're spending on things. Now, I know this is slightly different in schools, but here in university, we are given hours for different parts of our jobs. So we have teaching hours, we have hours for marking, we have hours for doing research projects and all sorts of other things. And these hours descend from above us as a process of negotiation kind of, uh, but you get given these hours and that's kind of the last you hear of it. And I'm sure it's the same in school as well, that you have different things that you do. You you might spend time uh, marking mock exams, you might spend time preparing lessons, there might be some ongoing project that you're doing. And it suddenly occurred to me at the start of the year, and I think it was probably, Emma, you were, you were telling me about the world of engineering that your other half inhabits, mm -hmm. where it's fairly standard practice for people to account for their time. And so I thought, oh, let's have a go at this. So for the last year, I have been accounting for my time. <laughs> I have been feeding some hours back in the other direction. So I was given uh, X number of hours. For example, I've been given 100 hours to work on my PhD. I've been given, uh, is it 171 hours to engage in uh, research and scholarship? So every day I've sat down and worked out roughly, uh, not not to the second, how many hours I've spent on certain things just to find out where all my time goes. And how helpful have you found it? I found it reasonably interesting. I mean, I think one of the problems we have in a job like ours is that quite a lot of the time it's quite difficult to put an hour into a box 
in quite that way. So I might sit at my computer and I might do a bit of work, but I couldn't tell you whether all of that hour was spent on, for example, running the PGC music course or working on some other administrative part. So I, I suspect that my hours have probably underreported a little bit because sometimes I just haven't been able to kind of untangle it. And also you spend a lot of time thinking and, you know, we spend a lot of time just having free form chats don't we on the phone and things like that and it all turns into something good but it's quite hard to put it into a box so I would say it's had mixed success but certainly I think maybe if you are given jobs to do by people above you it's sometimes good to be able to report back to them how much time you spend on those jobs because sometimes they don't necessarily know and you don't necessarily know and if you can give them a number and say well hang on a minute if you want me to do that job that's going to be you know, 50, 60, 100 hours of my life that I'm not going to get back, it perhaps just makes you a little bit more informed and, and a little bit more able to know what you can take on and what you can't. So it's worth a try. I'm not saying it's going to work 100%, but there are free web-based resources out there that just look like calendars that just allow you to top these things up. It's a bit like budgeting, isn't it? It look is. At, look at what you spent last month. Where yeah. did you overspend? And, yeah. and did you overspend on the right things? It'll yes. be on the email, won't it? it that's will. where the overspending <laughs> is. Yeah, overspending email. <laughs> that's the one that's quite hard to actually get a grip on, actually, because we do just tend to dash off emails, don't we, on our phones in, in random little bits of time. So I suspect that's the one I've probably underreported. Uh, but when it comes to, for example, preparing lessons, um, that kind of thing, it's quite interesting to see where all that time goes. Thanks for that, Tom. Some really interesting food for thought across the past two episodes. And hopefully um, they've set you up in good stead to start to think about and to observe in an informed way the cross-curricular curriculum design and teaching and learning that you will see going on in your respective placements going forward. So enjoy, have a good deep discussion and think of your own off the back of this. And thank you very much, Judith, for joining us again. Thank you. My pleasure. We'll see you next time. That was Emma and Tom's PGC podcast presented by me, Emma Thayer and Tom Breeze. The special guest this episode was Dr Judith Neen. For an introduction to cross-curricular teaching and learning in your own subject area, you can check out the series of books edited by Jonathan Savage. Thanks also to Albert Einstein, Gerald Moore and the builders who are still renovating the corridor. If you like what you hear, please rate and review and subscribe to the podcast or tell a friend about us. We're all off to take off our top hats and mop the perspiration from our brows. Until next time, take care and enjoy teaching. Mm-hmm.